Now, my personal feeling is that while Glasgow did not accomplish as much as some people had hoped, that it actually, there was a lot to be proud of. A lot came out of it that really sets the scene for more action in Egypt and then in Abu Dhabi in 2023. Can the accomplishments from the COP26 meeting in Glasgow help shape the energy industry in 2022 as we move on that path towards net zero? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is Kelsey Warner, co-host and The National's future editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. At the top of the show, we, we heard from Randy Bell, a uh, senior director at the Atlantic Council, about the impact of um, COP26, the global effort to kind of shake up and, and, and get going on, on climate action to, to meet our targets on global warming. And it seems that in many ways, um, the outcomes from, from COP26, whether people are happy or not with them, uh, will will ha- will have a big bearing on on this year. Absolutely, and it was an event that allowed the Atlantic Council to do a pulse check on leadership from the energy industry and see how they really feel about this path to net zero and their role in it. So, for an honest perspective and kind of this anonymous survey taking uh, role that the Atlantic Council was able to play, I, I think they have an interesting kind of voice in this conversation because they're really listening. Well, we we had a good chat with Randy Bell, so let's hear that now. Randy, it's good to have you here from DC uh, with us in the studio in Abu Dhabi. Uh, we're going to talk about the outlook for energy. And you've written recently that, well, you're suggesting that 2022 could be tumultuous when it comes to energy. Um, you know, Is that because of what's going on globally right now, or is this something that's been brewing for some time? Well, uh, first of all, it's great to be back here in Abu Dhabi after a couple of years of not being able to travel. So uh, it's just wonderful to be back here in this great city. Um, You know, the energy world has been tumultuous for the past couple of years with first the um, dramatic drop in prices because of COVID in 2020. And then last year, we started to see prices go up and the oil price was a major cause of inflation in a number of importing countries. And of course, the gas crisis in Europe, also high prices in Asia, um, have were dominant uh, in the headlines uh, in the second half of 2021 and continue to be a problem. Now, oil price recently crossed over $90 in part because what we've seen from OPEC increasing production, though there are still some questions about if certain OPEC countries, some of the smaller OPEC players, can actually deliver on their uh, increased quotas. And then there is a lot of geopolitical risk as well that's sort of baked into the current oil price, but could get worse, whether that's the Russia-Ukraine situation, which could have a major impact on uh, gas in Europe, but also on the oil market. There's, of course, the ongoing talks with Iran um, and then potential uh, or increasing tension in Taiwan. All those issues could have a really uh, outsized impact on the energy markets. And then just to make matters worse, uh, just this right now in the United States, we're seeing a major winter storm that could potentially cause outages again in Texas. While the governor there had promised 
earlier that there wouldn't be any power outages this winter. He walked that back and said, uh, it's possible uh, that there'll be power outages over the course of the next couple of days. And that could have an impact on, on energy production in the United States. Uh, it had a, had a pretty significant impact last year and also a, a human impact. So we're seeing just a, a, a large number of factors playing into what, what is very likely to be a, at least a dynamic year for energy, if not tumultuous. Then you bring into it the climate question um, and the pressures that many, many governments are feeling, um, the desire to act from the, the corporate side, and it just adds a whole nother uh, layer of complexity to the energy conversation in 2022. My sense is that sentiment around the pandemic is relieving pandemic, but it's being replaced by this feeling of geopolitical risk. Can you speak to a bit of that relationship? And we're in recovery mode, it feels economically on the pandemic, but now geopolitical risk enters into the frame. What does that mean, and how are we managing this this transition of of new harsh realities? Well, you know, every year the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center conducts a survey at the end of the previous year to, to get an assessment for how energy experts are feeling going into the next year. So, going into 2022, we had a very different set of responses on questions about risk than we had going into 2021. So, going into 2021 we had nearly 40% of our survey respondents thought COVID-19 was the biggest risk for energy. With cyber attack and interstate conflict totaling maybe less than 30%. Now this year, cyber attacks and interstate conflict are 43% of our survey respondents with COVID-19 only 11%. So it's really flipped. And so the energy expert community is really much more focused on the more geopolitical type questions than they are on COVID. Now, COVID isn't gone, as we all know, but it's having much less of an impact than it did for sure in 2020 and even, even less of an impact than it did in 2021. We're, we're expecting oil demand, for instance, to be back up to pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2022, barring any new variant or any new challenges from COVID-19, though it's also very hard to imagine the level of lockdown that we saw in 2020. Just, there's not a political will for that in many, many parts of the world. But as I was talking about earlier, the, the geopolitical risks are far greater. The issues that I talked about, but also then the fear of cyber attacks is a real one and can be related to some of those Russia-Ukraine issues, but also just have been ongoing in the United States and in, in Europe and in, in many parts of the world. And those are caused often by non-state actors that are just looking to make a quick buck. Um, and so you saw in 2021 the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline in the United States, which caused a temporary price spike in gasoline prices in the United States and was very worrisome and really showed the fragility of the system. So there's just a lot to worry about on the political side this year, even as we get closer to a pre-pandemic normal. I wonder, you talk about these risks and, and some of them feel like they're not going to go away, like cyber attacks or, or cyber risk is going to be with us, you know, as long as we're, we're digitalized, if you like. And hopefully the geopolitical risk will, will wane over time. Although, you know, given the news flow at the moment, it doesn't look likely anytime soon. But if, if I pick up on what you were talking about in terms of climate action, um, that, that's something that, that's quite interesting in terms of the research that the Atlantic Council has been doing, that almost there's been a reality check for a lot of leaders when it comes, energy leaders, that is, energy experts where perhaps sort of that optimism we had, maybe because the world stopped in 2020 and the skies cleared and 
and we saw a little bit of hope in terms of the battle against global warming. Now, after all the energy spent, if you excuse the pun, at Glasgow with COP26, that now people perhaps aren't as optimistic about climate action, but maybe as well as sort of the second half of this, this discussion, which is maybe they're, they're not really looking at what's happening on the ground, but sentiment has somehow flipped. You know, I, I think that's absolutely right that sentiment has flipped. Going into 2021, the energy expert community had, had a sense that COVID-19 really was going to spur climate action, um, that it was a great, it had created the space uh, for increased climate action. And then there was a lot riding on Glasgow. And perhaps global leaders overpromised on what was actually possible. But in our research, we found that people were quite negative about the outcome from Glasgow. You know, we, we asked this question, um, ranking the outcome of COP26 on a scale from more blah, 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 as Greta has described it, to, on the one hand, to creating a foundation for achieving global net zero by 2050. On the other hand, 51% of our respondents thought it was more blah, blah, blah. Only 11% thought that Gla the outcomes from Glasgow were created a foundation for achieving global net zero by 2050. Now, my personal feeling is that while Glasgow did not accomplish as much as some people had hoped, that it actually, there was a lot to be proud of. A lot came out of it that really sets the scene for more action in Egypt and then in Abu Dhabi in 2023 at the COP27 and COP28. Randy, that is such a bleak picture that you just painted. What made you hopeful? What made you optimistic coming out of COP26? Because to me, that sentiment flip sounds like an utter failure. Right. So, you know, if, if you look at some of the data that from 2021, there's actually a lot that was accomplished. Um, again, a record year for investment and deployment of renewable energy capacity, um, a record year of investment in clean tech startups. If you look at electric vehicle sales, they're, they're continuing to, to increase. Now, in, specifically in terms of the COP, they actually got to an agreement on Article 6 on carbon markets, which a lot of people thought was not going to happen. So they resolved the Paris rulebook, which is a very big deal and allows carbon trading, international carbon trading, um, to move forward. And that's going to be very important. Now, Alok Sharma was aiming to uh, phase out coal, and they're really trying to make COP26 the end of coal. They didn't get quite that far. So the language was phase down coal instead of phase out coal. But that's still the first time that fossil fuels were specifically mentioned in a COP communique. So I think while it didn't achieve what they had, you know, people were hoping, it actually is still quite an accomplishment. So as Alok Sharma has said, COP26 kept the goal of keeping 1.5 degrees alive, kept 1.5 alive is what, what they say. And I think that's true. Um, now, there's still a lot of work to do, but the direction of travel is correct, um, that, that we're actually moving in the right direction. You mentioned carbon markets, and that is something I wanted to ask you about. Can you just take a step back just for our listeners who are maybe not familiar with this concept? I think we're going to be seeing it more and more as it was brought to the fore, as you said, at COP26 and it passed. Uh, can you just explain what role the carbon market serves and the outlook for them in the years ahead. Now, I'm not an expert in carbon markets and carbon trading, so it'll keep it at a very, very high level. But the general idea is that by enabling the trading of carbon and, and offsets, that you will be able to accelerate climate action because uh, some countries will be able to move faster in decarbonization than others, and it'll incentivize those countries 
that can move faster to do so um, and allow those countries that are not able to move as fast to help support those who are. And so by trading carbon, you actually enable a faster global decarbonization. But the rules of that are very important because it's very easy to double count. Uh, if you look at carbon offsets, the voluntary carbon offsets right now, there's various various schemes, some of which are, are highly reputable and some of which you often question the legitimacy of those schemes. And so by creating a rule book that governments can use in this trading, they actually create a market that is transparent, that uh, allows for legitimate uh, action and legitimate efforts at decarbonization instead of really a, a carbon trading that uh, ultimately doesn't accomplish what it says it's going to. So a really big deal to allow carbon trading at the international level to happen. Um, I want to dwell a little bit on the blah, blah, blah from Greta Thunberg. You know, that statement, if you can call it, uh, from her really generated a lot of headlines and, and people focused on that. And actually, you know, we owe a debt of gratitude to to the activists who over decades have really put sort of climate change and climate action at the forefront. Otherwise, you know, we may not never have got to this point and, and there is obviously an urgency. But I wonder at this point whether the voices of the activists, whether it's at COP26 or the investors that are looking at some of the energy companies, the shareholders, we're getting to a point now where some groups are running scared when it comes to investing in the sources of energy that we need to manage the bumpy road to net zero. That we, we're going to be, you know, the tr it's a transit, as people are now quite rightly saying, there's a definition to transition, and it, it means that, you know, we can't do this tomorrow. So we've seen what it's like when we are short in supply. We've seen what it's like when prices are high, and it's going to be hitting households in the UK, elsewhere, in the pocket. So, you know, at what point do we need to say, okay, we get it. The debate is done. We understand. But you have to let us manage the transition in a responsible way. So first point I want to make, so the high prices right now are almost exclusively not a result of a lack of investment due to climate action, though that is highly possible in the future, that right now what we're seeing is due to underinvestment because of the low price environment we've seen really since 2014. I think just as a very good example, there were a number of LNG projects in the United States that could not get to final investment decision to FID during the Trump administration, uh, which was the most pro-fossil fuel administration we've seen in the United States in a long time. And, and so it had nothing to do with climate action. It had everything to do with economics. Now, if they had one or two of those had gotten to FID, uh, boy, they'd be happy right now. But there is some climate policy that did play, particularly in Europe, because they're underinvested in gas storage and were reliant on uh, probably too much wind power and the wind did not blow uh, as strong as it usually does in August. And then I don't call this climate policy, I call this bad energy policy, but the other issue in Europe is Germany shutting down its nuclear power plants prematurely. That's actually, you know, nuclear is an important zero carbon electricity source, but there are other issues that the Germans have with nuclear power. So I want to be clear that, that what's happening right now is not really about climate and climate policy, but what we're seeing is what could happen if we don't have enough investment in oil and gas going forward, because yes, it is a transition. And so we need to make sure to meet energy demand as long as we have that demand for oil and gas. So I think the best policy is to work on the demand side and changing the demand picture instead of changing, really focusing on the supply. I mean, you see a lot of activists, as you say, who really have brought this to the forefront and really made climate the crucial global conversation it is right now, but they're really focused on cutting off supply of energy, of fossil energy, 
instead of focusing on changing the demand so that you don't need that fossil energy anymore. I think that they'd be better served if they did that. And so what I'm hoping from Greta, you know, if she comes to Egypt or to Abu Dhabi for the COP27 and COP28, is that instead of sailing to the COP, which she did when she sailed to the US for UNGA in 2019, that she demands to fly on a plane that is fueled entirely by sustainable aviation fuel. So there is a technological solution, and I would love it if she used her platform to advocate for that solution instead of just uh, making a big statement without actually talking about what actual practical steps can be made. Yes, and I think that is the hope that we can have a nuanced conversation now. And I understand before that it kind of needed to be black and white because some of the opposition to climate action was quite black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think that we can agree that largely, as, as I said before, the debate is done. And so now we need a nuanced way of how we can keep the lights on as we save the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there are ways of doing this and there are ways of being thoughtful about it. It's going to be bumpy because energy markets are bumpy. There's nothing that says that you're not going to end the commodity cycle when you start transitioning to clean energy. You're going to see commodity cycles throughout the energy transition. So it's going to be bumpy. We have to be ready for that, but we absolutely can be practical about it at the same time. What I'm also hearing is not only is the debate over, but the time for invention is also likely over that the tools we need to navigate the energy transition actually already do exist. What we need now is, as you said, the demand side and scale and investment. So looking ahead to 2022, I know that you said that you're optimistic. But what is the path of travel for energy companies who are managing this really short-term, volatile, fossil fuel-centric energy reality with the transition? What is the path ahead? I want to go back to the first part of your question, uh, which was about the the tools being available. Uh, There are a lot of tools that are currently available, but they're not, we don't have everything that we need. And so we do need to continue to invest in new technology, in innovation, the hard to abate sectors, whether you're talking about steel or cement, there's a lot of work to be done in those sectors. But at the same time, there's a lot that can be done with existing technology, just deploying renewables, um, deploying carbon capture, uh, energy efficiency is never talked about enough. Um, but if you look at any of the net zero scenarios, it's about 40% of any solution. The, the IEA's net zero scenario they released last year, which was very controversial because of of how it talked about oil and gas. I actually think what's more interesting about that scenario is that the amount of energy efficiency work that needs to be done to get to where they want to be in 2050, where that scenario says it needs to be in 2050. Um, The world in that scenario actually uses less energy than it did in in that scenario in 2050 than it did in 2021. And so that's just a huge amount of work Uh, in the energy efficiency space that can get done. So there's a lot we can do right now, but there's still a lot of innovation and technological development we need to do. So now to your original question about what do oil and gas producers do, I think is that we'll see more investment in oil and gas over the course of 2022. Rig counts are going up in the United States. Um, You're starting to see more production, OPEC and OPEC plus countries. We'll see if how many of them can actually meet their production targets. So I think that the market signals will ultimately get us where we need to go. But what we also need, and this is what's going to be really hard, we need ESG funds to be thinking not just about the binary between clean and fossil, but to be thinking about transition. There needs to be some sort of transition funding to provide funding for 
fossil energy that is getting cleaner. Um, so you, there's a lot of opportunities in the fossil industry to make cleaner fossil fuels, which are going to be crucial because we're going to need fossil fuels throughout the transition. They should be as clean as possible. You see uh, oil and gas companies making these investments, making these scope one and two net zero commitments, and there's a lot of work that they can do. And so we need to find funding for that work so that they are able to continue to invest in the production of the necessary fossil fuels while still making them cleaner. And I think that's probably the solution, but there needs to be a framework that is a financial framework that's accepted. The finance industry has some work to do there. And then there probably needs to be a policy framework for that as well. Is that like blue hydrogen, blue ammonia, as opposed to sort of blue versus green? Is that transition fuel? Well, you're getting into one of my favorite subjects of hydrogen. So if you look at the numbers in terms of a current hydrogen demand. There's actually a, a lot of current hydrogen demand, about 100 million tons a year. If you were to try to replace all of that hydrogen that is currently produced almost exclusively from natural gas, a little bit, a little bit from coal, minimal amount of green hydrogen, it would require all of the installed variable renewable capacity as of the end of 2018. So it's just a huge amount of electricity, of clean electricity that's required to just replace the current hydrogen that's that's out there being used today. And so you, you do have a problem if you want to scale hydrogen using just so-called green hydrogen produced from renewable power and electrolysis. Because you also, while you're deploying renewable power for hydrogen, you still have a long way to go in terms of deploying renewable power on the grid. There are very few grids today that are maxed out on renewable power. California has a lot, but probably could absorb a little bit more. There are many places in the world that can absorb more renewables before you start running into serious intermittency challenges. And particularly places that have nuclear, um, that have gas as a backup, can continue to absorb more renewables. So the question is, do you deploy those in the grid or do you deploy those renewables for hydrogen? Because you can only build so much at a time. We continue to build more and more renewables every year, but it's never enough. So blue hydrogen produced from natural gas with carbon capture I think is not just sort of an, an interim step. I think it's part of the story over, at the very least, the medium term, because if we want a hydrogen economy at the scale that I think is required to meet our decarbonization goals, you're going to need as much clean hydrogen as you can get. Now, to get blue to actually play an important role in decarbonization, it has to meet some very strict uh, criteria in terms of methane emissions which is a real problem, but a solvable problem. It's not an intractable problem, as some analysts have posited. And then the other issue, making sure that the carbon capture rates are real and very high percentage of that CO2 is captured. That's also not a solvable problem. It's not intractable, but it has to be done right. And you're seeing projects around the world that, that are starting to go in that direction. So I really do think you're going to need blue hydrogen, at least for the medium term, because we just need so much hydrogen. And then you can produce hydrogen from nuclear, you can produce hydrogen through pyrolysis. There are other ways of producing it that are also potentially useful as we think about really growing a hydrogen economy at scale. The other molecule I always want to ask you about is, of course, carbon and the idea of the circular carbon economy, which was endorsed by the G20 in 2020. It's Saudi Arabia's strategy. Are you paying attention to that and what its role is in all of this? I think a lot of our attention is pointing to renewables. It is pointing to hydrogen. But there is in the background, I think, this idea that a circular carbon economy is possible. You spoke to carbon capture, of course. But what else is going on in that space? And is that possible? I'm so skeptical. Carbon capture is a key part of the circular carbon economy. I think, you know, the other pieces of the circular carbon economy 
renewables, if you look at the Saudi strategy, renewables is a part of it, nuclear is a part of it, carbon capture is a part of it, utilizing carbon, storing carbon, all a part of it. The key there is to be focused on emissions and not focused on the technology itself. I mean, I think that's really what's important. And so to be technology neutral. So yes, I think carbon capture is going to be a, a crucial part of any solution. If you look at any analysis, the IEA or almost any of the scenarios, you're going to have need carbon capture. You're probably even going to need direct air capture. So not just capturing carbon off of a natural gas power plant, but actually capturing CO2 right out of the atmosphere. And that's also part of a circular carbon economy. And then the other way of thinking about that is not in terms of CO2, but actually through pyrolysis, which is a production methodology for producing hydrogen that produces carbon black. And so an actual carbon product, not a gas, that can be utilized for carbon fiber for any number of actual carbon uses. That needs to be scaled. The utilization of that carbon create more demand for it, but it's actually a, a usable product. And that creates a new opportunity for a circular carbon economy as well. So- you're going to come back, Randy, in March mm-hmm. to the UAE at the end of March for the uh, Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum. What are your hopes and dreams for that event? Well, most importantly, we're hoping that it does not get postponed by COVID again. Um, it was supposed to be in mid-January, but with the COVID situation in the US, which was very bad, and, and in Europe, we just couldn't get the, the right people over here to make that event worthwhile. This will be the sixth annual Global Energy Forum. Of course, the 2021 forum was entirely virtual. Um, So we're just looking forward to being back and seeing everyone in person. But it's a a really important time to be discussing uh, some of the issues we discussed here, actually. The concurrent need to meet the energy demand that we're seeing through all means necessary, while also making sure we continue to act on climate and seeing how those two work together instead of being intention. And and I think that if there is uh, one single goal for the forum, it is to get uh, groups aligned on the need to have a pragmatic, ambitious uh, energy transition that is beneficial for all and doesn't cause the kind of pain that we're seeing right now, which really, you know, unfortunately impacts lower income populations much more than it does higher income populations. And so you want to make sure that the energy transition is beneficial for all. And so getting that conversation going and making that the topic of 2022, I think would be a very, very good outcome for that conference. Looking forward to it. Randy Bell, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate being back here in Abu Dhabi. That was the Atlantic Council's Randy Bell. That's it for today. Kelsey, want to thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to our production team, Arthur Edison, Ayesha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.